0: Uh, Father, we we thank you for allowing us to come and worship with your people. You're holy, and yet you invite us in, which is an absolute wonder. And we're here as a gathered people who are part of your kingdom, but also just want your kingdom to come here fully. We want your will to be done here. The world around us is so broken, and, and we personally are still falling so far short of doing your will that we need to work your spirit to make us holy so that we would live on earth as it is in heaven. And we we come to you bringing huge need. There are some among us who are still praying constantly for peace and safety for their loved ones in Ukraine. And so Father, we pray that you would bring that. There are some here who are praying for children that need a real work of your spirit in their lives so that they would know you and walk with you. And so we pray that that would happen. We're praying for strength to keep following you. We're praying for forgiveness for our failures and sins. We're praying for real help with our struggles with sin. And so, Father, we pray that you'd hear these prayers and that you'd meet us in this place of need. And Father, we pray that today you would give us a sense that our needs are met in Christ. Help us to believe in your real love for us. Help us to know that you've got all these things under control. And as we wait for your return, help us to wait faithfully, not being led into temptation, but delivered from evil by your power. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the world that that we live in specializes in the the light and insignificant. The biggest news this week was that one celebrity smacked another and and everybody talking about, what's your take on that? And, And as we give ourselves to those things, we all get more shallow. We all get more petty, becoming like the objects of our worship that are out there. And so one of the reasons that we gather is to remind ourselves of the important and eternal and weighty things. And that's the reason that we're going through this Apostles' Creed, Um, We're we're going through something that's not just riding a news cycle, that's not just going to be a passing trend that'll be gone next week, but we're talking about some timeless truths that have been rehearsed by Christians throughout the ages. We're not escaping at all from reality today, but we're centering our attention on the most important reality, on the reality that really matters. And so we've studied line by line through this ancient creed, this ancient summary of the things that you can't deny and still call yourself a Christian. And so far we've said that the creed says, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, and today we'll cover the phrase, and he suffered under Pontius Pilate. Um, now, if you're following along with the guide that we gave you at the beginning of this series, we did call an audible and we decided to break this up a little bit today. So, so we're only covering this one phrase today. And then on Good Friday, we're going to cover the fact that he was crucified, died, and he was buried. And then by Easter, we'll be back on track because on the third day he rose from the dead. And so that's where we're going with the next bunch of sermons. Next week, we'll do a standalone Palm Sunday message. And, and then we'll continue with this study through the Apostles' Creed. And so today we're talking about the fact that Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate. And there there are two people besides Jesus mentioned in the creed. You've got Mary, the mother of Jesus, and Pontius Pilate. Jesus came into the world through Mary, and then he was crucified and killed under Pilate. Ray Shiner writes, Mary's associated with Jesus' birth, Pilate with his death. Mary with his reception, Pilate with his rejection. Mary with his flourishing, Pilate with his suffering. He was born of the Virgin Mary, and he suffered under Pontius Pilate. And so these two people serve as the bookends on the life of Jesus between his conception and his cross. And so today, to look at his suffering under Pontius Pilate and what that means for what we believe, we'll, we'll take this text in John chapter 18, starting in verse 33. Um, the, the setting here is it's the trial of Jesus. It's just before his crucifixion. Jesus is at the headquarters of this Roman governor named Pilate, and this is what unfolds. John 18:33. it says, So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, do you say this of your own accord or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to you by the Jews, over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. But you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. So the accusation that Jesus is being tried for is that he claimed to be the king of the Jews. And anyone who claims to be the king poses a threat to the rulers. So this Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, examines Jesus to see if there's guilt in him that's worthy of death. And so in this story, you see that the Jewish leaders wanted him dead because he was a threat, but they were not their own rulers. They had to bring him to, to Rome that had now kind of conquered their state. And Rome was the one who could assign the death penalty. And so in this collaboration to put Jesus to death, you definitely have Roman guilt and you have Jewish guilt. Gentiles were guilty, Jews were guilty. There's no grounds for anti-Semitism in this story. There's no grounds for anti-Semitism in the gospel narratives because everyone can read this story and see that everybody collaborated together to put the righteous son of God to death, Jews and Gentiles. And so Pilate was, was Roman not Jewish, but he ruled over this Jewish province of Judea, and he ruled from 26 to about 36 AD. And that's not really disputed by historians. A number of historians have have made record of his reign. He wasn't just some fictional character from the Bible, but he was an actual historical figure. And that fact is incredibly important. The fact that Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate means that this stuff happened in history because we've got this temptation all the time to make Christianity just nice sentiment. That it's just supposed to be a collection of nice sayings, or or we'll try to reduce Christianity just to its moral teachings or just to its inspirational texts. But notice that the Creed doesn't even mention the teachings of Jesus. Now, obviously, those teachings are really important. They were inspired by God and given to us in the Bible. But the Creed goes from the virgin birth to the suffering of Jesus under Pontius Pilate which means that Christianity has at its core, not just the teachings of Jesus, but the person of Jesus, who came to earth at a real time and in a real place in history. The center of our faith is the real historical Jesus. If Christianity is mainly about inspirational sayings or mainly about motivational phrases, then Christianity is all about me. It's about giving me comfort, it's about giving me motivation, It's almost like the faith that we hired to be our personal trainer to kind of cheer us on and tell us that we're doing great. But Christianity isn't just guidance. It's not just nice sentiment. It's a true story of what really happened in time and place with the historical Jesus, which tells us a lot about the nature of the Christian faith. We don't say that you have to choose to either believe facts or believe your faith. Our faith are in these facts of history. Our faith is in these facts of history, the Son of God showed up on some date, we're not really sure when it was, 3 or 4 B.C. maybe. He, he grew up in Israel. He suffered under a real evil government, a, a real evil official named Pilate. He was really crucified. He died, was buried, and he really rose again. And often in Christian history, there have been attempts made to spiritualize the resurrection of Jesus. That we try to take all the miraculous out of the Bible, so we say, yeah, Jesus really died, he was buried, but then his resurrection was like a spiritual resurrection. He rose in our hearts, he rose in you and me, and now we all have that resurrection spirit of Christ in us, but obviously he didn't really rise from the dead. But the gospel texts are written like real history. They recount Jesus going through a real trial under a real guy, and they never say, okay, now let's change gears and get all spiritual and talk about how he spiritually rose from the dead. They tell this whole thing like it's history. He suffered under real Pontius Pilate, that trial happened, the crucifixion happened, and the resurrection happened. So Christianity is based on historical facts. And it's also important for us to realize that historical facts come to us in a different way than scientific facts do. Um, A few weeks ago, comedian Ricky Gervais was on the Stephen Colbert show, and they they got in an argument about the existence of God. And Gervais is an atheist, and Colbert was making the case for God's existence. And when Gervais tried to make his case against the existence of God or against the the reality of uh, any religion, he said this. He said, if we took any holy book and destroyed it, that wouldn't come back just as it was. Whereas if you took every science book and every fact— In a thousand years, they'd all be back because all the same tests would give the same results. So in other words, the only things that we can know for sure are the facts of science. We can know for sure the things that we can discover in the physical world, the things that we would rediscover again, even if all of our knowledge about those things got wiped out, and Christianity would essentially disappear if we took away all of the recorded history. So that means it must not be true. We would never come up with those same facts about God again. Nobody would look at nature and come up with those same ideas about God. And and so therefore, we can throw out Christianity because we wouldn't ever discover these things about God again if all of our literature were wiped out. And now to a degree, some of that's true. I mean, true scientific facts would be discovered again and again because there are laws of nature put there by a lawgiver that wouldn't change and that would be rediscovered. If everything that we learned about gravity disappeared, we would discover that again. If we forgot that the earth was a globe, eventually we would figure that out again because it's it's true and it's real. But then to another degree, it's inaccurate because some of what we know about God is known from nature. Not everything we know about God for sure, but his eternal power, his Godhead, that we were created with a purpose. Those ideas can can be derived by studying creation, and so we would learn those things again. We would say those things about God again, even if we lost the Bible. But still, it's true that that the facts of science wouldn't tell us about the cross and the resurrection. If we lost the Bible, if we lost all of our literature, we would lose the gospel. We would lose the heart of our faith. We would lose what we know about it. But ultimately, this whole argument fails because Christianity comes to us in a book of history, not in a book of science. And history works that way. And if we wiped out every history book we wouldn't ever again believe in that history. If we lost all of our literature, we would never believe in Abraham Lincoln again. We would never believe in Julius Caesar again. But that doesn't mean that those guys didn't exist. It means that the stories of Lincoln and Caesar are, are stories that come to us in history. The fact that we would never know that again if we lost our literature doesn't make those stories false. It doesn't make them fairy tales. They're true stories, They'd be lost if literature and media were lost, but history is still real, even even if it could never be reproduced by scientific inquiry alone. And a large part of Christianity comes to us in written books that recount history. We have these, these history books in the Gospels telling us what really happened in the life of Jesus, and they are incredibly reliable. We believe they're reliable because we believe that God breathed out every word. He inspired them. He preserved them so that we would always have them. But also, they're reliable texts historically. They're firsthand documentation of the stories of the eyewitnesses to Jesus. The gospel stories that we have in the New Testament are the recorded testimony of the eyewitnesses of Jesus written while those witnesses were still alive, and this is big, because sometimes we're told in popular culture that the gospel narratives weren't written down until hundreds of years after Jesus. That they were only written down after a long game of telephone, where the stories were passed down through oral tradition, they got exaggerated with each telling, and eventually this guy who might have existed, named Jesus, who might have taught some good things, got exaggerated into this picture of a miracle worker, and then even into this, this picture of someone who is God. What started with just maybe this hippie dude who said a a lot of wise things, all of a sudden is this God that we're worshiping because it got exaggerated through all of that oral history over the centuries. But the gospel accounts that we have in the New Testament were written while the eyewitnesses of Jesus were still alive with those eyewitnesses as the sources for those books. So it's not like this stuff first got written down a few hundred years after Jesus was walking on the earth. This stuff was written down in that first century. Historian Papias, who wrote around 95 AD, was already already citing Mark's gospel. He was already saying that the source of that gospel was Simon Peter. He cited Matthew's gospel as already existing. He talked about John writing his gospel as his own firsthand account of his witness to Jesus. So we have firsthand accounts that were made early. And then not only were they made early, but they were copied like crazy. They were distributed all around the world so that we can actually look at families of early manuscripts. And of course, there are going to be minor discrepancies and copyist errors, but we can usually figure out where those came from. And all of the discrepancies together that we have in the major manuscript families still don't make a substantive difference to the overall message of the Bible. So in, in the scriptures, we have uber-reliable historical accounts, We have written history that tells us the story of Jesus and we put our faith in Jesus as he's conveyed to us in historical facts. And it's true, we would never discover Jesus again if all the books and all the tablets were destroyed, but that's true of all of history. So Jesus suffering under Pontius Pilate means that the story of Jesus happened in real history, in real time, and we aren't called to just have faith in faith. We're not called to just believe and believe. We have faith in these historical facts of Jesus. This also means that it's not true that the only reason we believe in Jesus is because of the internal work that he does in us. He does that work. There's a real relationship that's happening. He really is inside of us. There is a real communion between us and Christ, but we also believe in him because of the historical facts. There's a line of an older song where it says, you ask me how I know he lives, he lives within my heart. And and that's true, but that's not the only reason that we know that he lives. We know that he lives because he suffered under Pontius Pilate and he was crucified and died and was buried. He descended to the dead and then on the third day he rose again. That stuff happened in history just like our history books said they did. So beware of making the Christian faith just an internal, just a sentimental rearranging of our feelings. Jesus is both external, historical reality and he works internally and personally and relationally with us. And the truth is, both have to be true if we're going to be Christians. These things had to have happened in time and in space, and he has to be working personally in us. We need real faith. We need real internal repentance, but it's real faith in the historical work of Jesus and real repentance toward the one who is exactly the one that the Bible says that he is. Now, the fact that he really came in time and space and history also means that Jesus is not whoever we want him to be. When Christian Smith, who was a sociologist from Notre Dame, studied the real religion of Christian adolescence in 2005, so teenagers in church youth groups in the U.S., he said that their faith really wasn't Christian, but he called it moralistic therapeutic deism. And he said it's essentially a religion that says that you can be good and happy, you can be a good and happy person if you live morally. It's a religion that gives you some therapeutic benefits, like a feeling of well-being, it'll help you live long and prosper, but it didn't involve anything that looked like historic Christianity. And he said the God of that whole system of belief is really not the God that we see in the Bible, but more the God of deism, one who's not really involved in our affairs, or it's almost like a selective deism, where we allow God to rule and reign over some parts of our lives, but other parts we say he doesn't have any authority. He's not really here. And then he said that the God of the typical Christian teenager is, and this is a quote, something like a combination divine butler and cosmic therapist. He's always on call, He takes care of any problems that arise. He professionally helps his people to feel better about themselves and does not become too personally involved in the process. And he said that a significant part of Christianity in the United States is actually only tenuously Christian in any sense that's seriously connected to the actual historical Christian tradition. But it's rather substantially morphed into Christianity's misbegotten step cousin, Christian moralistic therapeutic deism. And so that was the primary religion of, of Christian teenagers in the US in 2005 and spreading among adults. And now it's 2022. And those teens are in their 30s. And about half of our church were, were teenagers in 2005. And so this is the God that we grew up on. We listen to lessons about this God. Our songs are often like the, the feel good songs about our feelings. We view the Bible as a self help book, and it isn't helping. This kind of Christianity is not lasting. People are leaving it in droves because it can't survive any of the crashes of life. It'll work when we're happy. It'll work when life's going well. It'll work when we're teenagers and everything is new and exciting. But when life gets hard and the as therapy model doesn't work, we quit altogether. Now, this is nothing against therapy. It's just saying that Jesus isn't mainly therapy. And and a Jesus who's anything that we want him to be, who exists in our hearts but not in history, isn't the kind of Jesus that can shape us. And what always happens is that a misformed view of Jesus leads to misformed lives. Because we always become like the object of our worship. We always become like the God that we worship. Listen to Psalm 115, verses 4 through 8. It says, Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk, and they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. We become like the object of our worship, we become like our gods. And so the reason that our faith has the strengths that it has and and the holes that it has is because of the strengths and the holes in our view of God. And the reason that Christianity can seem so formless and without distinction is because the God we worship, we've made to be formless and without distinction. But those who follow Jesus in the early church, they were moved from being nominal and mushy and lukewarm to bold and grace-filled and courageous and generous and devoted They totally stood out from their culture around them, but at the same time, they were generous and life-giving toward their culture and loving toward the culture. They weren't the culture's jerks, but they were the culture's servants who were salt and light, and and yeah, that was annoying because of their piety at times, but they weren't there to agitate, they were there to love. And a big reason is that they had a much fuller picture of God than the one that we got from moralistic therapeutic deism. They worshiped a God who does more than just make us feel nice and play nice with others, but they worshiped a God who was born of a virgin, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried, descended to the dead, and on the third day rose. And it's that vision of God that we need to recapture if we're ever gonna recapture a faith that makes a difference in our lives. A faith that actually lasts and gets stronger when things get hard. A faith that's real and a faith that's solid and worth spreading and passing down to our kids. So the fact that Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate is a reminder that all this stuff really took place in history. The faith is in real things. And then the nature of his suffering and his dialogue under Pontius Pilate tells us the nature of truth itself. If you look at again, John 18, verse 37, it says, Pilate said to him, so you're a king? Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I've come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice, Pilate said to him, what is truth? So Jesus, before Pontius Pilate, said that his life was to bear witness to the truth. And Pilate says, yeah, what's that? What's that to me? Truth isn't all that important to me. I mean, right and wrong, not important. What's important in this whole situation is me benefiting the most. Me getting what I want is most important to me. Me doing what I think will feel best for me is the most important thing for me. And so you see Pilate in this whole narrative, he's willing to bend the truth, to ignore the truth, to protect himself, to not act according to the truth. To him, truth didn't matter when it clashed with what he wanted, which was to keep these crowds happy and to get them off his back. So Pilate didn't care about the truth, he only cared about what our culture would call your truth. Sometimes we act like we are truth creators. We can create our own truths about ourselves, we can create our own truths about reality, and the way we do so is by trusting all of our feelings. And your truth is, is fluid, and so you don't have to contend with any absolutes, you don't have to contend with any unavoidable realities. If we live by our truth, then we can do what feels best, we can do what we think would be best, what, will, what I think will liberate me, what I think will make me thrive, but eventually we'll crash into the reality Of the truth you can jump off a cliff really believing your truth that you can fly and for the first few seconds it'll definitely feel like you were right and and it will feel exhilarating because man you really can fly until you meet the truth and so what we often do in our day is we free ourselves from confines and it feels good and the fact that it feels good tells us that it's true And so we free ourselves from the confines of Christianity and we say, this feels better, this feels right, I feel liberated. But living according to lies will crash down on us eventually. Or we free ourselves from the confines of having to love my neighbor as myself and instead I just live my truth. And it feels good and I feel invincible and I feel healthy and I feel like I've got all kinds of time on my hands now. But the selfish life doesn't make me feel good forever. We can free ourselves from the confines of telling the truth and say whatever we want about other people to make other people think less of them, to make us feel superior because I'm living my truth and it feels empowering. But eventually that world of lies that we're helping to create strikes us too. We can free ourselves from the bonds of our marriage without grounds and say, I'm trying to be the freest me and the truest me and it'll feel great for a minute but dishonoring God and breaking what he put together crashes down on us. And when we cast off the truth, we may soar for a time. We may feel great living our truths for a while. We'll feel liberated from any obligation to obey God. And those feelings can be so deceiving, where I've seen people who are casting off the truth of God and the commands of God in their lives blatantly, and then show up and lift their hands in tearful worship because this is the freest they've ever felt. But living for your truth always ends poorly. We can claim my truth above God's truth, but in the end, that'll only destroy. It may feel right. We may have a lot of people cheering us on. But you see in this contrast between Jesus and Pilate, one who lives according to the truth and one who lives according to his own truth. In fact, let's look at John 19. Um, I'll just read a section here. And just in your mind here, as we read through this, contrast Jesus and Pilate. Contrast the one who is standing for truth, believing in truth, living for what's true, and the one who's living for himself and manipulating and just trying to thrive. Uh, John 19, verse 1, it says, then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I'm bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, we have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die, because he's made himself to be the son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again, and he said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all, unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you're not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out, sat down in the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement and in Aramaic Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, behold your king. They cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? And the chief priest answered, we have no king but Caesar. So he delivered them over to them to be crucified. So Jesus preached the truth. He acted like the truth was true always. And it was so crucial to him that he was willing to hand himself over to these people who would put him on trial and torture and kill him rather than not fulfill his mission to bear witness to the truth. Jesus refused to live by lies. Pilate lived only for himself. And this whole thing, this, this, this encounter with Pontius Pilate that Jesus has is held out as an example for the way that we're supposed to live later on in the New Testament. In fact, listen to 1 Timothy chapter 6, starting in verse 11. He says, But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called, and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign the King of Kings and Lord of Lords who alone has immortality who dwells in unapproachable light whom no one has ever seen or can see To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. So Jesus suffering under Pontius Pilate was a model for us. Profess the truth. Live like the truth is true, even if it costs you everything. Don't live your truth. Keep the commands of God unstained and free from reproach. Live according to the truth. Do what's right and say what's true, even when it's hard. So Christ's suffering under Pontius Pilate shows us that that what we believe in is something that's factual and historical. It shows us what our relationship with truth should be. It's a model for us and how to stand for truth. And lastly, it also shows us that Jesus wasn't crucified because he was guilty, but rather it confirms that he was innocent. Pilate again and again goes out to the people and he says, there's no guilt in this man. I've examined him, He's, he's not guilty. I don't see a reason to crucify him. So Jesus is about to die, but he uniquely didn't deserve to die. They could trump up charges, they could falsely accuse, they could twist the narrative to make him the bad guy, but ultimately, even those who crucified him had to say things like, there's no guilt in him, and surely this was the Son of God. He was innocent. There wasn't a spot or blemish in him. And John notes here that this was at the Passover time. Every year at the Passover time, the Jews would observe this, and part of the observance was the sacrifice of a Passover lamb. They would do that to commemorate that first Passover when when the angel, the destroyer, was passing over the homes in Egypt, and God said, sacrifice this lamb, put his blood on your doorposts, and when the, the angel sees that blood on the doorpost, he'll pass over those homes and not kill the firstborn in those homes. So they did so, they were rescued, and they were rescued out of Egypt, and so every year at the Passover, the Jews celebrate that. And until, as long as the temple was standing, every year God commanded His people to offer a spotless, unblemished lamb as a sacrifice. In Exodus twelve, verse five, it said, "Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male a year old. You may take it from the sheep or the goats." And, and now, when Jesus is standing here before Pilate at the Passover time, he's being examined for blemishes. Pilate's looking at the lamb. And again and again, he says, there's no blemish. There's no sin. And Jesus became for us, when he went to the cross, our Passover lamb. Paul makes this connection in 1 Corinthians 5, 7. He says, for Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. John the Baptist, when he introduced Jesus in John 1, 29, said, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so this whole trial before Pontius Pilate, without Pilate even knowing it, declared the innocence of the Lamb of God so that he could go and take away our sins when he died on that cross. So that he could be the sacrifice for us, the final sacrifice, the ultimate sacrifice, so that we could go into the presence of God. In Hebrews chapter 9, verse 13, it says, For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. So Jesus was examined, he was without blemish, and then he went to the cross where he was sacrificed. And he went there and he died, he was buried, and then on the third day he rose again. And that sacrifice is offered to us as a gift. Because we can't approach God on our own. We can't be moral enough to get to God. We can't work our way there. We can't be religious enough to get to God. We don't get to God by joining this church or any other church. We don't get to God by putting enough money in the offering basket. There isn't enough stuff we could do to get ourselves to him. And even if there were, we, we would fail at all of it. But instead, Jesus came and he bore our sins when he died on that cross. He became... Sin for us who knew no sin so that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And the invitation is that if we'll turn from sin and unbelief, if you'll turn from your truth to the truth, and you'll believe by faith in his sacrifice for you. And you'll turn and you're, you'll yield and, and receive that free gift of eternal life that he offers you on that cross. He'll forgive you. Of all those who come to him, he won't lose one. You can cry out to him knowing that he's faithful to receive all of those who come to him recognizing that they've got nothing to offer, recognizing they've sinned and they've fallen short, recognizing they couldn't make it there on their own, and recognizing their need for him to be their king. And if that's where you are today and you turn to him, he'll forgive whatever you've done, wherever you've been, and he will step in and be your Lord. So it's good news that we believe. So, So let's pray. Well, Father, we thank you that that you really sent your son to suffer under Pontius Pilate. We confess that as we read this account so often, we're more like Pilate and not like Jesus. We do what's convenient for us. We do what feels right. We do what we think will fulfill us. And all of that with little regard for your truth or your commands. So, Father, forgive us. And Jesus, we thank you for your faithfulness on our behalf. Thank you for being the pure, spotless lamb that was slain for people like us. People who failed to love what's true. In the Holy Spirit, we ask that you'd help us to believe and apply these things. Help us to believe that our faith is rooted in the facts of history. Help us to believe that Jesus really suffered in our place so that there's no punishment left for us if we believe. Help us to believe that he's enough that he is the lamb, that he's cleansed us. As we confess our sins, help us to believe that that because of the suffering of Christ, we are forgiven. So now let's take a minute in silence to just confess our sins to God, casting all of those things on him, trusting again in what he did for us on the cross to, to cover those things. because of what God gave to us in the gospel. Listen, listen to this truth from Ephesians chapter two. It says, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. He's made us alive.